0: returning to 1 Samuel after uh, taking the summer to go through the book of Galatians. So if you remember, uh, if you were here with us uh, this past spring, we ended on a sobering note in the book of 1 Samuel with sort of the climactic and uh, tragic rebuke of King Saul. And now I think as, as you'll see, as we read here in chapter 16, there's going to be a shift here in the story, in the narrative of 1 Samuel. So let's go ahead and begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse are all your sons here? And he said there remains yet the youngest but behold he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and had and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, Now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command uh, your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing war Uh, a skillful in playing, uh, a man of valor, uh, a man of war, prudent in speech, uh, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God now in prayer. Father, as we take a moment to pause out of this busy week and open up our ears to hear what you have for us from your word. I pray that you would remove distractions, that you would lay aside anxieties, that you would block temptations, and that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. God, we need to begin to see things the way that you see them. We need to be able to look with your eyes. We need to be able to depend on your wisdom instead of relying on our own. So I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to do this very thing. Father, we also want to lift up the ministries that are taking place outside this room. Churches across our city, our own nursery and children's church. Pastor Andrew, as he opens up your word at Northside Baptist Church in Mineral Wells and many others. Pray that you would pour out your spirit among these people and that you would fulfill your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. And I pray that your presence would be felt and known and enjoyed and that it would be a transforming presence as well. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This past Thursday afternoon, just like many of you, I was sitting in a meeting when I learned that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II passed away after a prodigious career of more than 70 years as the British monarch. Obviously, most of us don't know what it's like to have a queen. But it's understandable that our neighbors in the United Kingdom found themselves racked with grief. You see, no matter who they are and no matter how long they live, eventually, leaders are going to break our hearts. Kings, queens, mothers, fathers, pastors, professors, politicians, are all going to fall. Queen Elizabeth, of course, managed to navigate the incredible changes in modern life of the 20th and the 21st century Without a massive scandal, something very few powerful leaders can say, after a long and arguably successful reign, she did fall. But many more leaders fail. And it's surprising to me, but maybe it shouldn't be surprising, that the way in which Samuel responds to the failing of his king, of King Saul, Is little different from the grief felt by those who are grieving Queen Elizabeth. I mean, there's just this profound sense of loss with which he is overcome. Leaders fall and they often fail. And even though we tell ourselves that we're very independent, that we're resilient, that we can kind of stand on our own, that we don't need other people, we find ourselves discouraged, disillusioned, damaged by these leaders. Like when a parent who has been a permanent fixture in your life for decades contracts a terminal illness and dies. We grieve. Like when a beloved pastor announces that he's moving out of state to take care of an aging relative. We, we're disoriented by that. Like when a favorite politician is forced to resign as a result of corruption, it can be devastating. Leaders always fall, and many times they fail. But when this happens, God is still in charge. And what's more, He's going, as we'll see in this chapter, He's going to provide a leader for Himself a king after his own heart, who in this passage represents him in a way that is going to point to an even greater king the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And by the way, uh, we're beginning to get into a new story here in 1 Samuel. We've been in the story of Saul, and we're about to enter into the story of David. And the temptation for us is going to be that we think, Hey, uh, David is like me. I'm like David. Maybe I can kill some giants and, and, and all the rest. But listen, David is God's anointed king. And we're meant to read David's story as part of a larger narrative that Culminates ultimately in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Himself. You remember what Skipper read just a few moments ago about how Jesus enjoyed the anointing of the Holy Spirit just like David did. I've entitled this message God's Provision because if you look at what's repeatedly said throughout the chapter, uh, throughout these 23 verses, then the theme becomes clear. By the way, in 1 Samuel, that's always, it seems that that's almost always the case. Uh, there are these repeated words, and if you pay attention to the repeated words, then you can understand what's being emphasized. And in this passage, it's all about what man sees versus what God sees. By my count, there are actually 13 explicit references to seeing or looking or to someone's appearance. Uh, Actually, in Hebrew, that word provide, the Lord says he's going to provide a king, uh, is actually the very same word. It's the same word that's translated see. Uh, It's kind of like in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, and then what happens? The Lord provides a ram to take Isaac's place, and, and, and Abraham says... Uh, he is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides, and that's that word see. You might say that the Lord sees to it. He sees to it that his plan is successful. In fact, that's the origin of this word provide uh, in Latin pro, before, videre, to see, to see before. That is to foresee, to see to it. God is unique in his vision, and he is unique in his pro vision. And in this chapter, we're going to observe four characteristics of God's provision. Four features of his character that rise to the surface when when leaders fail. First of all, consider with me from verses 1 through 3 that when leaders fail, God's provision is hopeful. When leaders fail, God's provision is hopeful. If you back up to the end of chapter 15 where we uh, left off in 1 Samuel at the end of the summer, we read that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Pretty sad situation. Uh, you remember what happened. Uh, Saul kept trying to treat God, like the gods of his pagan neighbors, he repeatedly surmised that what God cared about was a nice sacrifice, maybe a feast here and there, and he, he didn't want God, he didn't want to be God's vice regent, he didn't want to be God's king, he wanted God to actually be sort of like his personal genie, that when he needed something, he could go and get his wishes granted. And of course, we know based on God's prior interactions with the prideful and the, uh, the powerful. He, he wasn't going to put up with that. So Samuel has to break the news to Saul after his rank disobedience in the battle of Amalek that God had rejected him. And so there's this very bitter and very public rift between the prophet and King Saul, uh, the king who looked like a mighty warrior but who had failed miserably at his main job to faithfully rule on behalf of I Am. And so here's Samuel. I mean, put yourself in Samuel's sandals. He is approaching the end of a very long and difficult life. His mentor, when he was a young man, Eli, had failed. Eli's sons had failed. Samuel's sons had failed. Now, King Saul has failed. So Samuel's grieving. He's hurt and he's getting older, so he's worried about the future of God's people. He's wondering what's going to take place. But what God reminds him immediately of is that the human being sitting on the earthly throne isn't the one who's really in charge of all that's taking place. He says, get up, Samuel. How long are you going to sit on the couch in your bathrobe and eating Cheetos? Like, we've got work to do because I've, I've already seen for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. So slow down and consider what's taking place here. God, from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning, he's wanted a king, a human king, to have dominion over all the things that he has made. He commanded Adam to rule in justice and wisdom. Uh, Of course, Adam failed. Adam, if you remember from the book of Genesis, was supposed to be able to lead his wife and then the two of them together should have had dominion over all of the beasts and the the rest of the creation. But instead, what happens? This beast, this serpent, deceives Adam's wife, and then she convinces him that he ought to eat the fruit as well. It's totally backwards from the way that God designed. So... Adam totally failed, but when Adam failed, God did not get frustrated. He showed patience and loyal love to Adam and Eve. He promised the woman that her seed would one day rule and crush the head of the serpent. So fast forward to the time of King Saul. What's Saul supposed to be? He's supposed to have been kind of like that second Adam, ruling over this royal priesthood nation. But when he disobeys like Adam, he tries to blame. Do you remember what he did? Just like Adam did. He tried to blame the people, right, in in 1 Samuel chapter 15, instead of taking responsibility on himself. So just like Adam failed, Saul failed as well. But that's not going to stop God from fulfilling his plan to see creation ruled by human beings. He says, did you catch what he said? I've seen for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. This is for me. This is for my glory. This is for my pleasure that I am showing you loyal love and providing for you another king after my own heart. In other words, Samuel and the rest of the nation of Israel, they, in the, when, when a leader fails, they can have hope because of who God is. Saul failed, but God is still on the throne. God's work in the world, his saving plan, his redemptive plan to redeem all things and be glorified on the lips and in the lives of, of a new nation, it doesn't depend on a failing leader. It depends on the faithfulness of God. God's mercy falls on us because he is a merciful God, folks, not because, not because my dad is a good guy. Right? Right? God's plan moves forward because he's wise and powerful, not because my pastor is a capable leader. God's work churns ahead because of his goodness independently of any human leader. And here's what that means practically. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I I can't walk in all that God has for me today because you don't understand the home that I grew up in. You don't understand what my parents did. Then I want you to know that God's work in your life doesn't depend on your parents. He can work even in your situation, even in spite of their foolishness, in spite of their bitterness, in spite of their cruelty to you, God's grace is still at work in your life. You say, I can't serve God the way I wish I could because of what my husband did or what my wife did. No. Because of what happened in my last church. No, friends, you may need time to heal. I I recognize and acknowledge that. I'm not discounting that. But what you have to remember is that God is zealous to see his name glorified in your life. Now, it may not happen the way that you expect. But that's his desire. Your situation is not hopeless or beyond the scope of redemption. If you're here and you're breathing, then God's mercies are new for you today. And there is hope. Uh, By the way, this is a warning to those of us who are leaders, and almost everybody in here exercises some kind of leadership. I imagine Saul had the thought that we often have many times, these people need me, right? I'm the king. I'm a necessary part of this nation. These people need me. No, they don't. This church needs me. No, it, it doesn't. No, what we need is God. You remember what Jesus said when, to the Pharisees when they were grousing about all these people that were worshiping him and the children are running around and they're singing Jesus' praises? You know, don't Jesus, don't let these children be here. And what, what does he say? If they didn't praise me, God could actually take stones and the stones could praise me. Like, I'm not saying that what we do is irrelevant. I'm not saying that your role as a leader doesn't matter. I'm saying that it all doesn't depend on you. You can let somebody else take a little leadership. You can step out of the spotlight for a bit. God doesn't need you. You need him. And that's a good thing for all of us because every human leader is going to fall or fail. And when that happens, God's provision is hopeful. Secondly, from verses 4 through 10, when leaders fail, God's provision is insightful when leaders fail god's provision is insightful so samuel does what god says to do he travels to bethlehem Uh, the elders of course are a little afraid you remember what happened in the last chapter in samuel's life here's an old man who comes to the end of the battle of amalek and what did he do to king agag Uh, we're told that he hacked him to pieces And so these elders in Bethlehem are thinking, I hope we're not subject to any kind of prophetic discipline today, you know. And they certainly don't want to attract any negative attention from the current king. But Samuel says, I come in peace. And he follows through on God's practical plan to conceal what's taking place from Saul. Uh, So Samuel comes and he says, we're going to just do a sacrificial meal. Saul, if he would have found out about that, he would not have thought anything was strange that was taking place. That's something apparently that Samuel did often. And so, uh, by the way, this is going to become a constant theme in Saul's life until the end of the book. He is constantly uh, oblivious to reality. He's constantly unaware of what's going on. And of course, that's what happens when you align yourself in rebellion against the king of all the earth. So anyway, Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. He calls the patriarch of this ancient family a man named jesse who has a lot of sons and uh, in traditional cultures the oldest son as i'm sure you know would have had priority in uh, assigning inheritance or in being honored so uh, that's how samuel's thinking too and he concentrates he consecrates jesse and he consecrates his sons and all while this is taking place and they're getting ready for the meal he's watching these young men and as they prepare for the feast feast he he starts to form some judgments he sees Eliab and he thinks this must be the guy I mean he's another one of these starting quarterback types he's the oldest he's taller than all the rest he's muscle bound he's got this strong jaw and and he's thinking Eliab this is Jesse's oldest son this makes a lot of sense this must be the guy see Samuel isn't thinking about what happened the last time they chose somebody who looked like a leader you remember that Saul had been quite impressive, too, at the beginning of his reign. Head and shoulders above everybody else. But God has to tell him, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Same words used earlier in the chapter to describe the way that God rejected King Saul. You see, God's provision is insightful. It's wise. He sees past the facade he sees past what's on the surface. He cuts to the heart. He's not concerned with somebody's outward appearance. He's concerned with the contents of his heart. And unlike us, God actually has the ability to discern what is there. So Eliab is rejected, and then Abinadab is rejected, and then Shama is rejected. Then all the rest of his seven sons, none of them have the heart that God is seeking. Now, listen. I know we've talked about this a lot, but God's rebuke of Samuel for looking at the outward appearance, Samuel should have known better, but that rebuke falls on us too, doesn't it? I mean, when there is a vacuum of leadership, what do we do? Do we go immediately, get on our knees, and pray? Typically, what we do is we look for someone impressive to fill the void. Imagine, for example, I came to you after the service and I said, okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to plan an outreach event for men this fall. And imagine, you probably say, no thank you, but imagine for the sake of the argument that you said yes, all right? What would you do? What's the first thing that you would do? If you're smart, you would probably pull together like a brain trust, right? Some some men that you think could help you get this thing going. So you sit down for your first meeting and you say, okay, well, first thing we need to do is we need to find a speaker. And uh, so the group kind of gets to talking and you list out some ideas of all these different men that could speak at this outreach event for men. And uh, you kind of go back and forth and you decide, okay, well, let's figure out who our top choice is going to be and who's going to be the top choice. Isn't it going to be the guy who can tell the funniest jokes and the most interesting stories, the guy who looks the most successful, the guy who looks like he's in good shape, somebody that you might want to be like, right? Someone who on the outside looks impressive because you want this event to go well. And sure, somebody might say, Let's find the guy whose heart is in the right place. But you can't see his heart. And at the end of the day, you want that event to go well. So the temptation and the tendency is going to be, let's look at the outward appearance and go off of what we can see. That's how we work in our culture. If you were to show me two pictures, one of a guy who is ugly and out of shape and he's got bad acne, and another picture of a guy who's good-looking, and he has nice hair. And you said, guess which picture is a picture of a guy who's a pastor of a large church? Guess which guy has a best-selling book? Guess which one is, was just elected to Congress? I'm, I would probably say, probably, I don't know, but probably the guy that's better looking, Right? Because that's just kind of the thing that we value. And to a point, that's just part of being human. We can't see the heart. Only God can. But folks, given that that is the case, given given our limitations, we can't see inside somebody's heart. Don't you think it would be wise that we should spend a moment in prayer before we choose a leader? Uh, We're right now in the middle of searching for a, new associate pastor of Youth and Children. And I I just want to ask you, have you prayed with us for God's provision? Because we can't see the heart. God can. Don't you think you should ask for the input of someone who is older and wiser and not impressed by an attractive appearance when it comes to who you enter into a dating relationship with? Don't you think it would be wise to spend less time on your appearance and more time on your character? You see, when leaders fail, the human tendency is to rush to fill the vacuum with somebody who looks good on the outside. But in this case, God tells Samuel to say no seven different times until it seemed as though there was nobody left. Here in a couple of months, we're going to be in the middle of an election uh, I haven't even looked at what all the offices are that we're going to need to vote on. Uh, but that's why I'm saying this now. Your temptation is going to be the t- to choose the candidate and vote for the candidate who you think looks good. Like, and not even necessarily physically, but like their physical appearance, but just all the things are, are there that make them look like the ideal candidate. And, and you're going to be tempted to not even worry about what the Lord thinks. and And, and so... And you're, you're going to be tempted to fret if you feel like there aren't any good options. Like, God is leaving us with all these horrible leaders, and where's God in this? But one of the things that we need to remember is that God sees the whole board. See, we, we see just a small slice of reality. Even if you do all sorts of research, you still don't know what's going to happen when that person gets in office. But remember, God does. He sees the heart. He sees the future. He is wise and insightful, so you can trust him. And when he tells you to do something, even if it seems like it doesn't make sense, you can obey. See, when leaders fail, God's provision is hopeful. It's insightful. But notice with me in the third place from verses 11 through 13, that when leaders fail, God's provision is wonderful. When leaders fail, God's provision is wonderful wonderful. Here's what I mean by that. It is surprising and delightful. Samuel's gone through all the sons, all seven, and he turns to Jesse and he says, you don't have any more sons, do you? And, and, and Jesse says, oh yeah, we do. <laughs> My youngest son is watching the sheep right now. Subtext, he doesn't count. He's the runt of the litter. You don't want him. Jesse doesn't even bother to mention his name. We don't learn his name until much, much later in the chapter. By the way, this is the first mention of David in the entire Hebrew Bible. In our Bible, it's mentioned in Ruth. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes after 1 Samuel. So this is the very first time his name is mentioned. But Samuel says, go get him. Nobody eats till I talk to him. So they all stand around. They're staring at each other until finally up walks this young man, uh, really just a boy, with rosy cheeks and dirty hands, smelling like sheep. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any way to verify this, but some commentators have said that the description of David's appearance is anything but flattering. Uh, He wasn't the square-jawed bruiser, standing head and shoulders above everybody else, ready to lead his team to the championship. He was more like the water boy. I mean, here's a a cute kid, a baby-faced child, Now, if you've been paying attention as you read your Bible beginning in the book of Genesis, you know there are a lot of reasons why we should expect this youngster to be the one that is going to replace Saul. I mean, how many times has God skipped over the oldest in favor of the younger brother? How many times has God chosen a filthy shepherd rather than someone with wealth or power? God loves to do this. And do you know why? Why would God keep choosing the younger instead of the older? Why would he choose the unlikely instead of the one that you would naturally want to see in leadership? Why would he choose uh, the unimpressive? Why would he choose the shepherd instead of the swordsman? Because, folks, it's God's priority that every person everywhere recognize that he alone deserves the glory and the honor and the power, right? Like, that's what he's all about, that salvation belongs to him, that there's no grounds upon which we might boast, that we can never say, I earned the smile of God. Or that king, he was the strong one, he was the one that led us. No, God gets the glory, and so he loves to choose that which is unlikely, that which is unimpressive, and to use the weak in order to confound the wise. To God alone be the glory, not to us. Uh, Samuel, by the way, he should have known this. His mother, his own mother taught him this when, when he was just a child. She used to sing that song from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Do you remember it? This is Hannah. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Isn't that isn't it wonderful? Isn't it surprising and delightful the way that God chooses people to do his work in scripture? Isn't it wonderful that God would take a boy, the youngest son, baby-faced and unaccustomed to royal living and make him a king? I mean, here he is, he's sitting on a boulder in the middle of a pasture one day. I mean, just the sun shining, he's sitting there sweating, squinting, counting sheep, scanning the horizon. The next moment, his brother's running up to him, telling him, hey, you better get back to Bethlehem. The prophet's here, and he wants to see you. Fast forward five minutes, and that anointing oil is running down his face, and he's the next king. I mean, this is the kind of thing that our God delights to do. He loves to take that which is despised and that which is dismissed and exalted in his name. And, and by the way, this is something we're not just meant to leave With King David. Centuries later, the prophet Isaiah predicted a similarly wonderful surprise in the life of David's heir. This is the way that Isaiah describes King Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, from a worldly perspective, there's very little about Jesus that we would find attractive. I mean, think about it. He died violently at a very young age. He never got married. Never had a girlfriend. Never owned a home. Never published a book. He was rejected by the established authorities in the field of religion came from the family of a carpenter who had long since died. I mean, there is nothing from a worldly perspective about Jesus Christ that would have led us to say, yeah, he's the guy. He's the one. These movies and TV shows that you watch about Jesus, they always seem to make him out to be this bright-eyed, like attractive person with a winning smile and a gentle demeanor, and everybody's like drawn to this person. People draw the pictures of an idealized Jesus who embodies what they imagine an ideal man might look like. But according to the Bible, he was someone who you might be tempted to despise. Somebody that you might be, you might be tempted to dismiss, to cast aside. Shrug away. And what I want to say to you is don't cast him aside. Don't shrug Jesus away. Don't judge Jesus according to the standards of the world. Some of you only want to follow the stereotypical type A macho leader. And I'm telling you, that's not who Jesus was. I'm not saying he was effeminate like he was portrayed in certain contexts. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that according to the Bible, the Son of God was not somebody that you would look at and think, that's the guy. Because we don't look at things with God's eyes. We look at the outward appearance and we ignore the heart. But if you would recognize and be willing to believe it, God has provided for us a king, King Jesus, and in doing so, his provision is hopeful, it's insightful, and it's wonderful. It's surprising and delightful and... and, And what it reminds us is that our God loves to take that which is despised to confound that which is important and impressive. Thank God for his mercy. Finally, from verses 14 through 23, when leaders fail, God's provision is effectual. God's provision is effectual. So think about what it would have been like to be in David's sandals. One minute you're out watching the sheep. The next minute you're being anointed as the king of the covenant people of God. Then you finish the meal. Samuel gets up and leaves and goes back to his hometown. And you're kind of cleaning up the the, uh, dishes from the meal. And your father, Jesse, turns to you and he says, Hey, those sheep are not going to bring themselves back into the fold. Go finish your chores. Now, we're told that the Spirit of God rushed upon David at the moment of his anointing. So he must have been endued with confidence, with this ability, with this knowledge that God's going to fulfill his plan. But nevertheless, he had to have wondered, like, how is God going to bring this about? Here I am. I'm just a boy. I'm used to being out in the pasture with the sheep. There's already a king sitting on a throne. How is God going to bring his plan to fruition, but God is already working. Notice that verses 13 and 14 are sort of like this fulcrum in which, on which Israel's history is about to turn. There's like a seesaw movement here, right? Like the Holy Spirit of God falls on David. He's anointed, he's empowered to, to fulfill this calling. And then in the very next verse, we're told that the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. And now he's being tormented by this harmful spirit. By the way, some of you in your translations, you might have an evil spirit or a harmful spirit. Uh, This word translated harmful or evil, it has a very, very wide semantic domain. It can mean a lot of different things, anything from moral wickedness to a natural disaster or a calamity. So our writer of 1 Samuel, he's not saying that God is evil. He's not saying that God is sending a demon into Saul's life. What he's saying is, is that God sends this spirit of terror or calamity into Saul's life. You might call it a spirit of dread. And Saul, of course, ought to be feeling a little bit of dread. Uh, The kingdom has been torn away from him and is about to be given to somebody else. That's not going to end peacefully. That's going to end violently for him. But the irony is just all over the place in these verses. Saul, in typical fashion is a passive responder in this instance. I mean, just like when he was first introduced to us earlier in the book, he, uh, he relies not on his own judgment as a leader. He's not a go-getter. He relies on his servants. And he says, uh, you know, you guys provide for me somebody who can help me out. Re- that's the same word. That word provide, that's the same word that we've been seeing repeated over and over again in this chapter. And Saul's saying, hey, I, I want... Not God's provision, but I want my servants to provide somebody for me so that I can feel a little bit better. And notice how the servants describe David. He has all the qualities of somebody who can stand in the presence of a king. He's a man of valor. He's a warrior. How they know that, we'll talk about next week. Uh, the key characteristic, though, the one thing that Saul doesn't have is that the Lord is with him. The Lord's not with you, Saul, so let's bring, about, let's bring somebody over who has the Lord, so in just a short time David goes from shepherd to armor bearer to the king and we're going to see God's hand protecting David guiding him all throughout the rest of the book until finally years later the man whom God anoints here in chapter 15 or I'm sorry chapter 16 is going to be the king the people appoint to rule over them. Now here's the point. God is not limited By circumstance. Like when he wants to do something, when he wants to bring something about, he's going to bring that thing about. When he wants to do something, he's going to get it done. He's not like us. His provision is effectual. So what I'm saying is that the politicians and the warlords and the corporate leaders, the rulers, the important people of the world, whether they want to or not, they could never sway the plan of God in the world. Because God is going to do what he intends to do. The ways that you've sinned and done harmful things to your spouse or to your children do not mean that they are beyond the scope of God's plan for their life because God's plan is going to move forward no matter what you do. Even when God decided it was time to send his son into the world, not even King Herod himself, a ruthless and bloodthirsty tyrant, could stop the real king. And when the great ones of the earth conspired to kill him, it was, it, was, it was their greatest crime, but it was God's greatest work of redemption, right? The cross. See, when leaders fail, when they sin, when they break your heart, when there seems to be no hope, when the plans that God says he wants to complete seem impossible, God's provision is effectual. What he intends that he will do. Now, in Samuel's case, God's provision, hopeful, insightful, wonderful, effectual, it centers on this young man who we come to find out is called David. Uh, but, so that's in Samuel's case. But here we are, we're living all these centuries later, David's long gone, and based on what we read in the rest of the Bible the provision of this young man was just a precursor to the day when God is going to provide the ultimate king, his very own son, Jesus Christ. So if you're dealing with a leader who has fallen, if you're dealing with a human being who has disappointed you, who has failed you, then I think most of you could probably have guessed and predicted that I might say, look to King Jesus, he's a better king, he rose from the dead, he never fails. But it strikes me that in Real life, practically speaking, that for me to say, hey, when, key, when leaders fail, you look to King Jesus, that's hard to figure out how to actually do that in real life, in everyday life, right? And so before we conclude this morning, I want to be mindful of the fact that many of you have been where Samuel finds himself at the beginning of the chapter. Maybe you're experiencing this right now. You're dealing with the fallout of a failing leader, or maybe somebody in your life, in your family, has dropped the ball. And God has provided a king for himself. He sent King Jesus into the world, but what does it look like to follow him today? So I want to leave you with just a handful of practical principles that if you're here with a pen or a pencil, you might just want to write them down, okay? So stay with me, guys, for just a few more minutes because I want to make this really practical and connect it with everyday life. Say, I'm dealing with a failing leader. Somebody dropped the ball. What do I do? Number one, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true Savior who rescues you from sin and its effects. Like, do you believe this in your heart? Believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the true Savior, that he's the King who rescues you from sin. What I'm saying is that God calls us to faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Like, he doesn't call us to a life of Just responding to the circumstances and the things that we see. What we're called to respond to is the reality that Jesus is the King. So, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me tell you that every parent, every boss, every pastor, every teacher, every king or queen, every leader is going to fall short of the ideals that you have in your mind because they are not going to do what only Jesus can do. You need a Savior. I mean, there's a big problem that underlies all of your other problems, and that is that sin is separating you from God, and there's only one person who can take that sin away, and that's Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is that, number one, before you do anything else, you must believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and the true Savior who rescues you from sin and its effects. Secondly, this is very important. Believe in your heart that Christ is personally present in his church as its supreme and sovereign king. He's here, he's present. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is in Revelation chapter 1, in which Jesus is standing there in the midst of these candlesticks. And the candlesticks represent what? Local churches. Like he's not standing off to the side. He's not standing over and above the candlesticks. He is in the midst of the candlesticks. He is here, and multiple times in Scripture, he promises, I am with you, church. I am personally present, exercising leadership. Do you believe what he told the apostles, that it was better for him to go away so that he might send his spirit, the spirit that proceeds from both the Father and the Son, so that when we gather together in the name of Jesus, we know that he is personally present with all of his being and all of who he is, and he is going to lead his church personally. Say, what it. (laughs) What does that have to do with a failing leader? Well, the moment that we forget that Christ is in and among the believers in the church is when we begin to look to mere men to lead us, right? To give us hope and meaning. We don't need to do that. The moment a leader begins to draw draw people's attention away from Christ and toward himself, is the moment that we need to remember that Christ is here. Like, if he was physically standing here, do you think we would be doing things like that? No. But folks, he is here. He's personally present with his church. We're his temple, we're his house, we're his dwelling place. Thirdly, just practically, how do we do this? How do we deal with failing leaders? Number three, remember the day of judgment. Remember the day of judgment. What I mean is that the day will come when every leader, every parent, every pastor, every teacher is going to give an account. So do not fret when evil men manipulate, when they abuse the church of God. Do not fret when people are arguing or bickering and you can't seem to get to the bottom of the issue because the day is coming when all of the confusion is going to be cleared to the side and all, excuse me, all of the works. That every leader has done is going to be laid bare. And those things that are worthless and self-centered and manipulative are going to burn up. And only those things that we do in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ will remain. So what I mean is that you don't have to stand in judgment over every leader that you see. Like we don't have to live our lives as cynical, sarcastic, suspicious people. We can be a part of the church of Jesus Christ because we know I don't need to be the judge. Judgment day is coming. That man, that leader, I don't have to stand in judgment over him because he has a judge. He has a master. Remember judgment day. Number four, practically, how do I deal with failed leaders? Fourthly, be a Berean. Be a Berean. You know what I mean by that? Do you remember the Bereans in the book of Acts? Paul comes to the city of Berea, the synagogue in Berea, and he preaches the gospel, and then what do the Bereans do? They get out their Bibles, and they search the scriptures to see whether those things were so. They're checking to see if what Paul was saying is biblical. Folks, you have greater access to scripture than any culture at any time or any place. I am not exaggerating when I say that. There are more Opportunities for you to know what this book says than there have ever been. And so I think, and I'm sure you would agree, that we have often taken this gift for granted. Like we barely know the Bible at all. Let's not be like that. The scriptures are the gift of Christ and one of his means to exercise authority. This is how the king rules, by giving us his word. So let's be Bereans. Number five, practically, how do I deal with failed leaders? Fifth, observe the grace of God at work in ordinary men. Observe the grace of God at work in ordinary men. Isn't part of our problem that we flock to leaders that we believe are exceptional? That we think we need to belong to an important church? that we think we need to go to the church that everybody wants to be at, and we fear missing out, being a part of that congregation. It's not just that we want to be, to be at a faithful church. We want to be at a better church. That's ridiculous. Like, when we compare ourselves among ourselves, Paul's talked about this in 2 Corinthians, we're not wise when we do that. It's supposed to be about Jesus. Not some superstar preacher or Sunday school teacher or whoever. And one of the antidotes to this hero worship mentality that will ultimately leave us disappointed is to look out among the congregation of God's people and say, wow, look at the way that God is working through these ordinary people, these ordinary men and women. Look at the way that God works. These people who might not be the most gifted, they might not be the best looking, but who nevertheless have been used mightily in the service of the king, and to remember that God is working through ordinary folks. God has already provided a king. We don't need a second Adam to give us our identity. We've got one. We don't need another Moses to walk up the mountain on our behalf. We've got the new Moses. We don't need another Joshua to go lead us into battle. We've got a new Joshua already. The battle's already been won. We don't need another David to kill Goliath. The son of man has already trampled on the head of the serpent. Amen. We don't need another Jesus. We just need to observe where he's working. Among ordinary people like you and me. And so when the church is working the way it's supposed to work. When your home is working the way that it's supposed to work. God moves in and among us not to exalt a a mere human being, but he uses us in our weakness and in our dependence to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, our one Lord, our one Savior, the King, that the Father provided for himself. You see, God's provision is so much better than the kind of provision that we go out and seek for ourselves. God's provision is hopeful. It's insightful. It's wise. It's wonderful. It's surprising and delightful. And God's provision is effectual. He's going to do what he set out to do. And so let's trust him. Let's not go out and try to find a different king. Let's remember King Jesus. And let's bow to him. Would you pray with me now?